you know, as a kid, you read comics, you look forward to the opportunities to save the world and to be a superhero. We imagine we can do anything and be anyone. We get degrees, we vote for people who have this world-saving agenda. We give ourselves to something beyond ourselves and we continue to imagine a better world. Cassie teaches uh, public speaking and she, as a good public speaking professor should, has her student turn in uh, like topic approval forms uh, because some freshmen will be freshmen. And then there are some, like this one, that just remind me of how beautiful it is to believe you can change the world. Listen to this. The long-standing American obsession with perfectly manicured lawns is not only a remnant of colonial and classist practices, but a constant strain on human resources that are already at risk of depletion as the ecological damages to both flora and fauna. That is amazing. I have no idea if I like agree with their premise. I have no idea if I agree with what they're saying, but I love the ax they have to grind against the status quo. I love the fact that they are willing to rethink how we water our lawns and whether it is an oppressive practice. I love it. I love it. There's this willingness to rethink what is normal and to risk for what could be. But I'm not quite there anymore. I think I grew up too much. I don't think I've lost my idealism of what a more just, equitable, and beautiful world could be. I just think I've been let down a lot. Our heroes can often turn out to be more like villains. Our politicians have a bad habit of breaking their promises. Our institutions become more about pr protecting the status quo than protecting the vulnerable. And our businesses bow at the altar of a prophet named Prophet. Maybe I've just grown old enough to recognize my way of doing things is not getting the job done. So instead of working to make the world a better place, I'm just optimistic about getting a promotion in the office. I'm just optimistic about getting a nicer car or a vacation that makes it look like I'm more interesting than I actually am. We've grown up and we get a job where we spend most of our time in front of a screen and we look forward to the time in which we get to spend more time in front of a different screen. We've grown up and we've given up our dreams of healing the world. And that's sad. But what if I were to tell you that we are being invited into a conspiracy that will radically reshape the universe? A conspiracy that is laying the foundation for a new society free of war, free of violence, injustice, and oppression. A conspiracy that will overthrow the present order with its ways of greed, power-mongering, and exploitation. A conspiracy that will see poverty, child mortality, and political violence completely eradicated. A conspiracy that will see the forces of evil, the corruption of the human heart, and even death undone. It is a conspiracy that is led 
funded and empowered by someone you should know pretty well. Someone that has welcomed you in as a member of their own family. Someone who has cried, celebrated, and endured with you through every season of life. Someone that cannot be corrupted, cannot be dishonest, and cannot be tempted to compromise. What if I were to tell you that there is a plan to heal all that is wrong in the world? For many of us, this description of a conspiracy to restore and to heal our broken world is nothing like the gospel we learned in Sunday school. If I were to take some time and go through this room and just ask 10 of you in 30 seconds, summarize the gospel, I think we'd get some wildly different answers, right? We might get some that are pretty similar, but there would be different answers all the way around. Some might say Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Some might say Jesus came to dismantle the oppressive systems to make hell on earth a little more bearable. Or some might say Jesus came to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. Amen. Some might say you're a sinner going to hell, but Jesus died on a cross so you can go to heaven. But if you were to spend your time searching the four Gospels you have in front of you, you might find some fragments of those phrases. But you, you would also spend a lot of time looking in confusion because those quick summaries are hardly present in the things we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of the one we call Jesus. And so I want to spend a few minutes this morning unpacking the term gospel. And to answer the question, what is the gospel? I think the best place to begin is with the gospel Jesus preached. For if we don't start with the gospel Jesus preached, we may very well end up with a gospel Jesus didn't preach. This is to make the point that what we've called the gospel is a narrative that is oftentimes more expansive more robust and more nuanced than we thought it would be. So quickly, I want to go through the biographers known as Matthew, Mark, and Luke and just kind of give you some examples of the term gospel being used. In Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 24, the author writes, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. It's words directly from the mouth of Jesus. And then the text we just read now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're going to take that Mark passage and work through it just a few lines at a time. 
The proclamation begins, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion, that is a Greek word meaning good news of God. Euangelion is where we get evangelism or evangelical. However, in the first century, the time in which these biographies are being penned, this was not a religious term, but it was first and foremost a political term. If you don't know your first century uh, history, let me give you a quick refresher. About 70 years prior to Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus unified a divided Rome into what would be known as the Roman Empire, creating the most powerful nation the world had ever seen up until that point. The emperor, Caesar Augustus, thought so highly of himself that he adopted the titles Son of God, Lord, Savior, and Prince of Peace. I hope those sound familiar. In fact, one ancient inscription reads this. The birthday of God, Caesar Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings, the good news, the euangelion, that have come through men through him. This is almost the exact same vocabulary and introduction as Mark 1.1. Caesar Augustus then sent out evangelists or preachers across the empire to spread his euangelion or his gospel. Those Roman preachers may have said something like this. I have good news for all. Caesar Augustus has defeated the rebels. He has unified the empire, and his enthronement will usher in an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity. He is no longer just a man. He is the Son of God. He is our Lord. He is our Savior, and he is the Prince of Peace. We will now know what peace and justice is because of his coming. A euangelion in the ancient world was a royal announcement about a king and a kingdom. Which brings us to the next line. Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled. This is to say that the Old Testament, the prophecies and predictions that it continued to write of are about to come to pass. The story of Israel stretching back from creation itself, is climaxing in the person of Jesus. The hopes and dreams of an entire nation in one human. The one they've been waiting for, the Messiah, has arrived. And with him, the announcement of a new kingdom. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, or as Matthew writes of it, the kingdom of heavens. Matthew just had to be different. Uh, he chooses to use the kingdom of heaven. It's often defined as the range of God's effective will. Or as Jesus' definition goes, it is the space in which God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Many will translate it as the reign of God because it communicates something more active for English 
listeners. Like kingdom sounds pretty static to us. It sounds like a people or a land. Reign is more active. And that is the role and what Jesus is speaking of. Say, for instance, we were to talk about the kingdom of Henry V. Yes, we're talking about a people and a place, but more specifically, we're talking about the order imposed on a particular people and in a particular place. And that particular monarch, and in the case I'm using right now, Henry V, we could be talking about the quality of the order imposed. So it could be an order of prosperity or of shortage. It could be an order of conflict or peace. It could be an order of benevolence or oppression. When we talk about the reign of a particular monarch, we're talking about the order they are imposing on a people and a place. And we're also talking about whether the people can joyfully participate in that reign or must rebel and reject against it for it is evil. This is what we're talking about when we speak of the kingdom of God. It is the reign of God beginning to invade human space. And contrary to popular opinion, the kingdom of God and the rule of God is not limited to each believer's heart. It's not some matter of inner belief disconnected from our behaviors, our public life, or our interactions with the wider world. The kingdom of God pervades all parts of life. For it is the domain of God being exercised in our world. And it is the kingdom that is utterly unlike the kingdoms of our world. We just sang of it in this song, Simple Kingdom. But it is a kingdom that belongs to those who do not have a penny to their name. It is a kingdom of comfort to those who have been crushed by the weight of the world. It is a, king, it's a kingdom of downward mobility, favoring the have-nots over the haves. It is a kingdom where those that ache for justice will be satisfied it is a kingdom where the powerful strive not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. It is an upside-down kingdom, a new world order under the leadership of Jesus, and it is a kingdom that we were made to be a part of. As Dallas Willard puts it, we are built to live in the kingdom of God. It is our natural habitat. Listen, this is about to be the most difficult part of this whole thing. Here we go. I enjoy the nation we live in a whole lot. But I look forward to a day when the United States is replaced by the kingdom of God. I look forward to a day in which the People's Republic of China, the United Kingdom of Britain, and the Republic of Peru joyfully lay down their arms and we all confess that Jesus is Lord. I look forward to a day when we, the United States, give up the business of war and we get back to gardening, where we turn tr tanks into tractors. I look forward to the day 
when the Russian Federation and the Republic of Korea give up on conquering neighbors and take up the task of caring for communities. I look forward to a day when the kingdoms of old, built upon corruption, greed, and manipulation, are overthrown and replaced by the kingdom of peace, justice, and love. The kingdom of God is not a vague way of saying Jesus is the king of my heart. It is to say Jesus is the king of the world. Jesus is the king of the world. What looked like a death on a cross was actually an enthronement ceremony. Jesus will go on in Mark 1 to say, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This phrase, is at hand, is kind of a difficult Greek word to translate, but I think at hand does it well. This is to say that God is no longer planning. There are no more whiteboard sessions. There are no more practice runs. There are no more strategy meetings. God's conspiracy to take his world back from Satan's sin and death has begun in the person of Jesus. His method for overthrowing the powers is not military force or political coercion. It is suffering love. He has launched a campaign called the gospel in which he is inviting every human being on the face of the earth to hear his vision of the future. Remember his conquering of death and to join his family. To sit at a table in which every tribe, language, and nation will be represented in a kingdom called God. It is a conspiracy to heal the world through suffering love. And anyone of every tribe, tongue, and nation is invited to experience his benevolent reign here and now. He's inviting us to experience the kingdom of God today. Now, it'd be easy to look around and say, that sounds great, but we're not really in the kingdom, right? Jesus could have just missed it. He just missed the timing. He was off by a few thousands of years. It would be easy to say, Jesus missed it when he said the kingdom is at hand. But if you look at Jesus' teachings, the way he talks about the kingdom is both a present reality and a future vision. This is known as the already and not yet nature of God's kingdom. We can experience God's kingdom now, and we anticipate a future in which the entirety of the world will experience it. This is how John's revelation describes our kingdom future in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. 
They will see his face, and their name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If this description of the gospel is jarring, I think that's a good sign. I think you're beginning to grasp the magnitude of Jesus' vision and grasping why he was such a threat to the Roman Empire. Jesus did not get crucified because he said, love everybody. He got crucified because he was a threat to the power arrangements of his day. Don't take my word for it if you don't believe me. Let's look at how N.T. Wright, in his just English way of saying it, uh, writes about the gospel. He says this, The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. The ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last so that the new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power, the power called love. The good news was and is that all this happened in and through Jesus that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. Do not allow yourselves to be fobbed off with anything else. I'm not sure what fobbed off means, but it drives the point home. Worship team, if you want to join me on the stage. Every year around this time, we will return to our vision of revealing the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. And we'll spend the next two weeks talking about what it means to reveal that kingdom together as a community and here in our context, Kansas City. But thinking about revealing is only helpful if you know the nature of the kingdom. It's only helpful if we have a robust understanding of the type of world Jesus is trying to create. The gospel is nothing less than a conspiracy to reshape the world as we know it. Not by force, but by suffering love. The gospel is a conspiracy to reshape the world as we know it, not by force, but by suffering love. And we will only discover how to follow the way of Jesus in suffering love if we heed Jesus' instructions to repent and believe. To repent and believe sounds like some instructions you would see on a billboard as you drive down 435 right? It might have black background and some flames and just repent and believe. Repentance in particular 
has been a guilt-laden term that's used as a weapon in churches all across our nation. But repentance, as it is used by Jesus, is an invitation is to, to rethink everything. That it's only helpful in light of a new announcement. So it could be said, rethink the way you see the world in light of the kingdom of God. Repentance is the lifelong process of exploring what we assume to be normal and questioning its consistency with the kingdom of Jesus. It is to look at the well-manicured lawns and go, does this have to be the way it is? It is the uncomfortable inventory of our habits, our attitude, our culture, and our assumptions to discover where we have yet to be transformed by the kingdom. It is to plunge the depths of our soul and say, where have I not been transformed by this announcement of a new kingdom and a new king? Repentance is an open-hearted posture to rethink the status quo. And it is accompanied by its companion, belief. Belief in Christ is an act of allegiance. An allegiance that leads us to do strange things in a culture for the sake of the kingdom. It is to step into God's great conspiracy to heal our world. And it's not like waking up with a to-do list every single night put to you by the Holy Spirit. It is to recognize that the kingdom is already at work and to let this new culture transform you. And this transformation often begins with a subtle change in opinion. We begin seeing things the way Jesus sees them. Where we begin to see people the way Jesus sees them. Where we begin to work in a way that Jesus would work if he were in our place. And then you start stepping out in belief by putting those ideas into practice which often feels very risky. So repentance is to rethink what is possible and belief is to risk for what can be, what could be. Here's what this might look like in a community like ours. Might look like rethinking my spending habits and risking an investment in a friend's startup. It might look like rethinking my time commitments and risking a commitment to a refugee family. It might be rethinking the bitterness I held towards that coworker. You know the one I'm talking about. And risking a new friendship. It might look like rethinking my political allegiance and risking something that challenges the powers both on the left and the right. It might look like rethinking what I'm willing to do for that promotion, for that sale, or that raise by working with integrity. And some of you know that working with integrity is a risk in the place you work. It's rethinking my assumptions about those in poverty and risking a friendship with someone unlike me. 
It might be rethinking what happiness means and risking a, redefining it not as serving myself, but as serving others. May this be a community of rethinking where we plunge the depths of our soul and we open ourselves up to the possibility of God's kingdom doing something new, doing something we've never seen before. May this be a community where we are always open to rethinking status quo. And may we in belief and courage risk for something new. To risk rethinking what is possible and open ourselves up to being the people of the kingdom. Listen, it is not our role to build the kingdom. God is perfectly capable of that. But it is our job to rethink status quo and to risk for the kingdom we now call our own. It is to be the kingdom community as best we can. Let's pray. Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Spirit, help us heed the words of Jesus to repent and believe, to rethink what is the status quo and to risk for what might be, to be people with open hearts and open hands, prepared to discover what it is to reveal the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.